"'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, "'not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. "'They hid in the basement and cowered in fear, "'for Krampus was coming, and the end drew near. "'You see, Santa Claus, as we know him today, "'that's not the only version of Santa Claus going around.' And as far as anthropomorphic personifications of a multitudinous gestalt of holidays goes, we could do a lot worse than Santa Claus. A lot worse. Every year there's a lot of talk about the so-called War on Christmas, and we debate the pros and cons of the holidays. And somewhere in this false dichotomy of whether or not we are at war with Christmas, we never stop to question whether or not we should be having a war on Christmas, because I think we should. We should all be shouldering arms and standing against the Yuletide, because Christmas has a problem with Manifest Destiny, and we should have all declared war on it when it annexed November. The hour is late, comrades. We must push back while we still can. For even now, Christmas, led by its dark emperor, Mariah Carey, marshals its troops for the final offensive. <clears throat> but first, the history. I've covered this next bit before, so I'm not going to rehash too much old ground, but Christmas is the Dane Cook of December holidays. There's nothing spectacular or original about it. It's just louder than everything else. Hi, welcome to Burger King. May I please take your order? When Christianity was first becoming a thing and they were trying to win over people to their religion that sounded a lot like someone cut and pasted a whole bunch of other religions together, the early Christians came up with the strategy of saying, hey, you know that super cool festival that you guys have? Well, we've got that as well. And isn't it an astonishing coincidence that our holiday happens to be on the same day as your already massively popular holiday that everyone already celebrates? Isn't that convenient? December the 25th is notably a couple of other significant holidays in the ancient world. It's the Zoroastrian festival of Mithras, which celebrated the god also known as Mithras, and a typical Mithras celebration would be all about how Mithras was the saviour of mankind, born of a virgin, and we should all have a party celebrating his birth by exchanging gifts and feasting and bathing in the blood of a bull and then having an orgy. December the 25th is also the Roman festival of Saturnalia, celebrating the god Saturn. I've gone into this and Lupercalia before, but a quick recap. The way you celebrated Saturnalia was to honor Saturn as the savior of mankind, born of a virgin, and we should all have a party celebrating his birth by exchanging gifts, feasting, bathing in the blood of a bull, and then having an orgy. Then, in about 400 AD, along comes Christianity, and they say, hey, we also have a festival about the savior of mankind being born of a virgin, and we celebrate by exchanging gifts and feasting, but our hot new take is that we don't bathe in the blood of a bull and have an orgy. And somehow, this is the version that takes off. Go figure. Anyway, I've said it before and I'll say it again, there is nothing original about Christianity. It's all about taking something popular, doing it in a more clumsy manner, and then convincing people that they did it first. It's exactly like Squid Game. So, one of the dudes who was trying to get this whole Christianity scam off and running was a guy by the name of Nicholas. Nicholas was born into the lower middle class of a village in Anatolia in about 270 AD. He became a Christian bishop at an early age and made a legend of himself through one story in particular. There were these three young girls whose families were too poor to afford a dowry. In case you don't know, 
A dowry was the price a girl's family paid to a man in order for her to marry, because women were essentially chattel back then. So these three young girls were too poor to afford a dowry, and they were going to be sold into slavery, because that's how things rolled back then. And then along comes Nicholas, who paid the dowries of these women so that they could get good husbands and didn't have to be sold off as sex slaves. Good guy Nick. The story goes that he came along at night, and he dropped gold into the stockings of the women, whose stockings were hanging by the fireplace in order to dry, and on the third night he dropped gold into the chimney. So now you know why some Christmas stuff be like it do. And in case you haven't guessed, the Nicholas in question is Saint Nicholas, as in Santa Claus. One of the sources I went into for info on Saint Nick was the Vatican Archives, which I've gone into before, and I will again because they're so awesomely one-sided, and they go into great detail about all the awesome things that Nicholas did in his life, like sparing these women from being sold into sex slavery, but oddly enough, they have absolutely no qualms about the law of sex slavery itself, which is codified in their holy text because you want to have that in your back pocket in case there are some Muslims or some Jews or some Zoroastrians that you need to persecute. There is apparently no cognitive dissonance there whatsoever. And the Catholic text, they also mention that one of the more notable achievements of Nicholas was that he attended the Council of Nicaea, and just dropping, quote, attended the Council of Nicaea, end quote, like that wasn't the most insane thing that ever happened. In case you don't know, the Council of Nicaea was when all of the world's top Christians got together to work out if Jesus was God, or if he was a man, or if he was a man who became a god, and as you can probably imagine, the death toll was in the tens of thousands. The Vatican records also mention that Nicholas lived under the reign of the Roman Emperor Diocletian. Here's what the Vatican's entry on Diocletian has to say. Quote, Diocletian Roman Emperor from 284 to 305 AD, persecuted Christians. End quote. That's it. That's all they have to say on Diocletian. Diocletian, a guy who was born the son of a lowly scribe and worked his way up through the military ranks until he became the Caesar, the Emperor of Rome, basically the king of the world at that point, That's just an incredible story. He expanded the borders. He essentially built the Byzantine Empire. He created a new judicial system, which is still in place today. He bent the world to the power of his singular will, and he gets shade thrown on him because somehow the nutjob cult of terrorists who were rebelling against him won the long game. History is a fickle bitch. Another line from the Vatican Records. Quote, Nicholas suffered for his faith under Diocletian and was thrown in prison with other bishops, priests, and deacons, and because of this, there was no room for the real criminals, the rapists, the thieves, the murderers. End quote. Are you guys fucking serious? A. There were no prisons in those days, they were just holding pens. B. There was plenty of room because everyone was getting thrown to lions or put into sacks full of roosters, dogs, and snakes and thrown into a river. Yeah, go and look up the Pina Calais. C. The Christians were in prison because they rebelled against the Roman Empire. Why is this important? Well, for one thing, because Jesus himself said, don't rebel against the Roman Empire. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's which is probably the first documented case of Christianity not giving a fuck what Jesus actually said. And another thing, 
Christians were being thrown into prison because they just burned the city of Nicaea to the ground because they were arguing over what flavor Jesus was. Sorry, end rant. I was born on St. Nicholas Day, and I've really got an axe to grind against the guy. But anyway, back to the story. St. Nicholas eventually becomes Santa Claus because of reasons. It's honestly not interesting enough to go into, and I've already fallen down one rabbit hole. I think we should spare any further rabbit holes. Throughout history, everyone sort of does their own Christmas thing, and a lot of different people have their own ideas about St. Nicholas or Santa Claus. The thing you need to remember is that for the longest time, there was no real set way to do Christmas. Everyone around the world did their own different Christmas thing. Even village to village had different Christmas festivals and practices and traditions. It was a very varied thing depending on who you were and where you came from. There was no unified sort of Christmas cultural event. But then, in 1931, Coca-Cola comes into the picture. Well, they didn't come into the picture. Coke wasn't new at this point. They'd been around for decades. They'd made their fortune on the fact that if you put cocaine into a soft drink, people will buy it. It's a truth universally acknowledged. You put cocaine in anything, people will buy it. But then, since they'd been forced to take the cocaine out, that meant that Coca-Cola actually had to market themselves for once. So in 1931, they decide to attach themselves to this Christmas thing, which is quite popular. Well, actually, Santa had been a part of Coke advertising for about a decade at that point, but nobody could quite agree on what Santa actually looked like. Some people had him looking like an elf. Most advertising featured him as a tall, gaunt-looking figure who looked kind of like the Slender Man, which is probably closer to tradition, but no less terrifying because of it. But then in 1931, Coca-Cola decide to lock it all down, and they give us the modern Santa, because the Slender Man Santa Claus is scary as all hell. In 1931, a Madison Avenue type by the name of Haddon Sundblom decided that shit-your-pants-scary Santa was out, and the world needed a Santa that didn't haunt your nightmares. And in doing so, he looked to inspiration from the 1822 poem by Clement Clark Moore called A Visit from St. Nicholas, which we all know better as Twas the Night Before Christmas. It's not actually called that, it's called A Visit from St. Nicholas. There you go, the more you know. Anyway, Sundblom decided that Santa needed to be a jolly old fat man who brought mirth and joy instead of terror, and that was probably the right call. But I think the best description of both the character and the design brief comes from the Coca-Cola Corporation themselves, in which they stress that Santa should be, and I'm quoting here, quote, a warm, happy character with human features, end quote. Human features, how nice. I, I really like that they stressed the, the human aspect of Santa Claus. I agree. I like the human touch. I also love the fact that in 1942 they decided to give Santa a sidekick known as Sprite Boy, because why the fuck not? And presumably they would go off and fight the forces who wage war on Christmas. But Damo, you say, it's 1942. Wouldn't the all-American Santa Claus be off fighting the Nazis? Oh, you sweet summer children, all of you. God bless each and every one of you. Coca-Cola invented Fanta to get around wartime embargoes of Nazi Germany. Why would you declare war on a customer? Coca-Cola had no problem with Nazis. 
but that's a story that is absolutely for another time. But it does kinda, sorta, maybe segue us into what I actually wanted to talk about today, which as far as rambling introductions to my shows goes, is probably somewhere in the top five, but still not number one. Because today, I want to talk about the German version of Santa Claus. It's historical time. And what I'd like is, I'd like you all to take a moment to imagine what German Santa Claus might look like. In case you don't already know where I'm going with this. Go on, take a moment, pause the show if you have to, I want you to take all of your heuristics about the German culture and German people and everything German history and try and build up a picture of what German Santa Claus might look like. Do you have it? Are you imagining it in your brain right now? Are you imaginating German Santa Claus? Good. And if you don't have it yet, here's a hint. German Santa isn't called Santa. They call him Krampus. So what does your mental image of Krampus, the anthropomorphical personification of Christmas in German culture, what does Krampus look like to you? Did you imagine a hulking, eight-foot-tall giant with glowing red eyes, a horse skull for a face, large, pointed horns, fangs, covered in dense fur with a snaking Gene Simmons tongue? Is that what you imagined? Merry Christmas, Mother Lickers! Krampus is coming to town! So yeah, he quite literally looked like Satan. Or a yeti. Or a devil yeti. And the sum of a devil and a yeti is way scarier than the individual elements. So much so that in the 12th century, the Pope tried to ban depictions of Krampus because he was obviously the most evil thing in the universe. But Krampus cannot be stopped that easily. Krampus, despite having horns and fangs and claws, he comes to your house packing heat. Krampus carries a cage on his back, which he uses to capture disobedient children. He has a net and chains made from frozen iron forged in the fires of hell itself for the same purpose of capturing disobedient children. And if those disobedient children needed a bit of extra encouragement, Krampus also carries a scourge. Because that's always a delightful thing to have in a Christmas story, isn't it? A scourge. Very Christmassy. The scourge. If you don't know what a scourge is, then... Good on you for being a good person. But now it's time to pop that cherry. Scourges were mainly used as a punishment for disobedient slaves. A scourge is a type of multi-tailed whip. Think like a cat of nine tails, but way worse. Because the lashes of the scourge had lead balls at the end of it to get a bit more power in the swing, you know? And the ropes themselves were braided with barbed wire or nails to give it a bit more kick. A scourge is a nasty, nasty weapon. Scourges were designed specifically to be non-fatal, but to make anyone who got scourged wish that they were dead. There's a reason that Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan both referred to themselves as the scourge of God. Now imagine your happy little Christmas elf is carrying one of those around to encourage children to behave. 
So if St. Nick, Santa Claus, if he's all about bringing toys and presents to children who have been good, Krampus is the thing that scares kids straight. We here in the Anglosphere, we don't know how good we have it. Oh, you were naughty this year? Well then, Santa won't bring you a present. He'll bring you a lump of coal, which you can then show off and laugh about in the Australian Parliament. Treasurer has the call. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. It's coal. Not so in Germany. If German children misbehave, then at the end of the year, Krampus is waiting for them. And Krampus does not fuck around. A light punishment will have Krampus break into your house on Christmas Eve and beat you raw with a log of birch. It gets worse from there on a sliding scale. Oh, did you steal something? That's very naughty indeed. Krampus is coming to kidnap you, put you in his sack, take you to his ice fortress in a parallel hell dimension, and then spend a thousand years slowly eating your skin. Well, sleep type Liebchen, don't let the beg Krampus bite. And I don't want to give the idea here that um, Krampus is a replacement for Santa Claus in German culture, even though I have probably absolutely given that impression. But Santa Claus and Krampus work as a team, well, specifically St. Nicholas and Krampus work as a sort of Justice League in German culture. At Christmas time, St. Nicholas will bring presents to all of the good little boys and girls. But if you were on the naughty list, that's when St. Nick whistles and brings in his muscle, Krampus. What, your benevolent Christmas figure does not have an assassin on retainer? Your culture is weak. It's like a whole nation of Hans Grubers. So Christmas actually functions a little differently in Germany. They do their thing on St. Nicholas Day instead of Christmas Day, which, as stipulated earlier, is December the 6th. But the night before St. Nick Day, the night of the 5th, they have Krampusnacht, which is when Krampus comes out and reaps his dark harvest. And the tradition in Germany is that children wake up on the 6th, St. Nicholas Day, and they open their presents, and so far, so Christmas. That means that they were good. But something that German parents will do is make one of those presents that they give to their children a wooden rod made out of birch, with a card on it saying, From Krampus, indicating that the child wasn't naughty enough to warrant being beaten or being kidnapped and having their skin peeled off, but that's still potentially on the table should they do anything in the future. Which, I'm sure, has in no way permanently scarred any German children ever. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a single unhinged German adult at any point in history, but hit me up in the comments if I missed any. In something that is probably completely unrelated to that last statement, in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a huge boom in Krampus cards, which are exactly like Christmas cards, but with Krampus. And instead of a cute puppy wearing reindeer ears or elves with candy canes or whatever, Krampus cards would have pictures of Krampus. And Krampus would be merrily impaling young children on a birch bough or chaining them up and stuffing them into a sack so that he could carry them away to the underworld. And they'd have messages on them like, Be good or flee before Krampus, which, you know, is totally healthy. Today in Austria and Germany, there is something known as a Krampusluff, or Krampus run, where a bunch of people get dressed up as Krampus. So imagine a parade of people dressed up as terrifying demons, 
and they run through the streets ringing cowbells and poking people with birch canes. Makes a Christmas parade with a Charlie Brown float seem kind of tame, doesn't it? Where's the pants-wetting fear? And something you really have to love is when I was doing research for this show, I came upon a number of op-eds by people claiming that the crappish laugh has become too commercial these days. It's all about merchandise. I mean, it used to be about terrifying children with an unstoppable hell goblin. How far we've drifted from our roots. To round all of this out, I don't want anyone to think that Krampus is a uniquely German thing. I picked it because it's the most well-known and, arguably, the most terrifying demonstration of concept, but a lot of cultures have their own freaky Christmas demons that bring nightmares and pain through the festive season. Austria and Hungary have their own version of Krampus that fulfills pretty much the same functions. They call her Frau Pörster, which means, cheerfully, the belly slitter. She also runs by the sobriquet of She with the Iron Nose and Scissors, so she's just a barrel of laughs. Frau Pörster looks a lot like Hella from Thor Ragnarok, and if you've been a naughty child, she'll come around to your house in the middle of the night and cut open your stomach rip out all of your organs, and then replace them with hay so that you can become a scarecrow. Sweet dreams, Liebchen. The Italians have Lebefana, which is kind of the same thing, but Lebefana is way more tame. She'll just leave you with stockings full of rocks or coal or something if you've been naughty, instead of turning you into a stocking full of rocks or coal. So Italy is way more chill. The Greeks have the Calacanzaroi, which is... Kind of like Christmas goblins that break into your house and scuff up furniture during the 12 days of Christmas, and you have to leave a trap made out of a pig's jaw to keep them away. Why? Who knows? It makes exactly the same amount of sense as anything else related to Christmas. Virgin birth, kings bearing gifts, convenient comets, it's all just as ridiculous. We've just been inoculated to how silly it all sounds. In Wales, they have the Very Luid, which is interesting. Very Luid, which is Welsh, so that is in no way spelled like it's pronounced. Very Luid is a ghost, like a stereotypical white sheet ghost, but it has a horse's skull for a head. The etymology of Very Luid is debated, but essentially it's just kind of maybe sort of Welsh for Blessed Mary, because as we all know, Mary, mother of the sweet baby Jesus, was actually a ghost made up of horse bones. Yes, all your nativity scenes are wrong. Mary is supposed to be Ghost Rider. And in this fun Christmas tradition, someone dressed as the ghost horse will go from door to door singing rhymes at the people inside the house. And the custom is that the person inside the house has to sing a rhyme back about why the Luid cannot come into the house to do ghost horse stuff. And if the person in the house can't beat the very Luid in this rhyme contest, then the Luid gets to come inside the house raid their pantry, and drink all of their beer. Yes, the Welsh Yule tradition is a rap battle with a horse skeleton over your right to party. I'll get the seven digits from your mother for a dollar tomorrow. Oh, and if the horse skeleton isn't scary enough, and live horses are scary enough, their skulls are freaky as fuck, if that wasn't pants shitting enough for you, the Luid also has a troop of clowns that follow it around, trying to break into your house because reasons. And those are just a few of the Christmas traditions around the world that I wanted to share with all of you. There's a lot more world to cover, of course, 
but I wanted to keep everything appropriately disconcerting. I wanted to go with the HGT-style Christmas traditions. I wanted everyone to be, you know, super freaky on Christmas. So I had to cut a lot of the ones that weren't quite as terrifying. For instance, in Japan, they don't really do Christmas, but they do have a tradition that on Christmas Day, everyone goes to KFC and gets a 21-piece bucket of festive cheer. That's the truth. I wish I were actually creative enough to come up with that on my own. That's what they actually do. But my favorite has always been, and will always be, Krampusnacht, and the horrifying hell beast that gives it its name. The most German way you can possibly ever celebrate the festive season. Because nothing says happy holidays like being whipped, stuffed into a sack, and carried off to the underworld by a demon mixed with a yeti. Krampus is coming, and all he wants for Christmas is you. Thank you all so much for your support throughout this year and all the other years. I am so happy we got to spend as much time together as we did. I'm genuinely ecstatic. And I would especially like to thank my ultra-cool super patron people, who are the real Santa Claus in this story. This show is going to be a Patreon exclusive, because people on Patreon get a whole bunch of cool extra stuff, like a bonus show every month. But I thought that in the spirit of the season, I'd make this my present to the world, because I'm as generous as I am humble. And now maybe my actually generous patrons can make this a tax-deductible charitable donation or something. I don't know, don't quote me, I'm not an accountant, I'm a clown. And in just a little behind-the-scenes bit for you in case you're interested, right now, when I'm recording this show, it is currently 2 a.m. and 24 degrees Celsius, and so humid you can cut the air like a bunt cake. Now I know, Damo, you like it hot, and the hotter the better, but here's the rub. To record this show, I can't have any fans or air conditioning or anything like that going on, and performing is hot work. So just let it be known that I suffer for your podcasting pleasure. I am literally Jesus. Honestly, they should call this whole season Smithmas. I kid, but do I? What'd you do? Screw up like the Beatles and say you were bigger than Jesus? All the time. It was the title of our second album. Anyway, I'll be back in the new year. I've already got almost a year's worth of shows cooking, and they'll be nice and tender by the time we've all calmed down from this festive season. So look out for all of that next year. It's going to be totes malotes awesome. And also, stay tuned on my Patreon page on New Year's Eve, where I'll be putting out my hotly anticipated Totally Arbitrary Awards, which I do every year, and they are always fun. They're a fan favorite. Until then, be excellent to each other, and have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Crazy Kwanzaa, a Tip Top Tet, a Ripping Ramadan, a Salacious Saturnalia, a Mythical Mithras, and a Solemn and Dignified Merlin Peen for all of you practicing Vidukians out there. I totally would do Secret Santa, but I don't believe in Christmas because I'm a Verdukian. Yes, we are all very strict Verdukians. Oh, my apologies. I've never heard of that religion. What do y'all believe in? Oh, many things. Uh, the healing power of root beer. That a man can have up to nine wives if two of them are male. And we always leave work to go to the movies on Merlin Peen. So good Merlin Peen to you, Kenneth. Good Merlin Peen. And whatever you do, lock your doors, bar your windows, hide in your basements, because Krampus 
is coming. Fly, you fools! Fly! Fly!